You're listening to a Thorn Creek Weekend Message Podcast. For more audio content and other resources, visit thorncreek.church messages. Well, happy Father's Day. Anybody can, can anybody relate to any of those comments? I can relate to a lot of them, and I'm like, oh my goodness, all dads go through this. Well, good to be at church, guys. God loves you. God cares about you. You're not here by accident. Turn to the person next to you and just tell them God loves you. God cares about you. And then swap masks. Everybody swap masks with everyone around you. <laughs> no, it's good. Welcome to everyone online who's watching online. Glad you are tuning in. So excited. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for your grace and your love. We humble ourselves before you. You're so good, God. Uh, you are our uh, way maker. <laughs> You are our miracle maker, and we uh, desperately need an encounter with you, Lord, an encounter with your word, an encounter with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're in charge here. Have your way. Move in every heart. And for those who are watching online, move in their heart too, God. Take a hold of me, God, um, and have your way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I've, I've said before when I, uh, when I preach, I, uh, I don't want to ever go through the motions because I can give you a book report on a passage in the Bible. I can do that. I can, we can have like a glorified Bible study. But uh, for me, it's always been much more than that. It's God, what do you want to say? And there's a difference. There's a time for a glorified Bible study, don't get me wrong, but when I'm up here, I, I, I come up here with, uh, with, a, with a great weight on my shoulders to be a good messenger for the Lord and for us to hear a word from the Lord. So this message right here, I'll just tell you, I started studying this, this passage um, <clears throat> on Monday, last Monday, and I kept saying, Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to say? And I've, I've been working through it, went one direction, went another direction, and about 10.30, 11 o'clock last night, the Lord took me another direction. So this message was written this morning. It was written. So it's fresh. It still smells fresh. It still smells good. I'm just telling you, it, it's a fresh message. So I just believe that God has something to say to you because he knew who would be here, and he knows who's watching online, and God knew that this needed to be, this needed to be a message for you. So... I'm excited. Turn to the person and just tell them, hold on. Can you do that? Just tell them, hold on. Open up your ears. Don't, don't look at Snapchat or anything like that. Um, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Um, who is or was your father? What, he, what was he like? What was he like? Maybe your father was, was known for his terrible jokes. Anyone know, have a father known for their terrible jokes? My, my kids would probably say that about me. Um, maybe your father is known for his temper. Maybe he's just known, or maybe stubbornness, stubbornness, or maybe his absence. My dad left me when I was about seven years old, walked out of our lives. That's what I remember about my first dad. Um, maybe he was known for his faithfulness, or maybe his unfaithfulness. Maybe he was known for or is known for his love for God's word. And you catch him reading God's word. You catch him on his knees praying to God. What was your dad 
known for. Maybe he was a strict dad. Anybody have a strict dad? And, and, and you had to keep things away from him because he would just get upset for whatever it was. Um, <clears throat> for some people, Father's Day is a great day. And for other people, Father's Day is a rough day. Going down that aisle on, at King Supers at the grocery store and picking out a card for dad may be a difficult task for some people. What is your father like? I want to talk to you about your heavenly father. Your heavenly father is always faithful. Your heavenly father will never let you down. Your heavenly father will never walk out on you. Your heavenly father loves you. Your heavenly father cares about you. Your heavenly father knows the number of hairs on your head. Your heavenly father knows the desires of your heart. Your heavenly father knows every day of your life and cares about the details of your life. Your heavenly father wants you to cast all your burdens on him. He's a heavenly father with big shoulders. He's a good God, and he's a loving God. That's your heavenly father. Don't ever look at your earthly father and look at those things that, you're, that maybe hurt and think, oh, well, that's how my heavenly father is, because your heavenly father is perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He's forgiving. He's gracious, and he's powerful. That's your heavenly father. When you look at the Bible, and you look at dads, you find out pretty quickly that the Bible is full of fathers. Everything is about who's your daddy. Turn to the person next to you, just tell them, who's your daddy? <laughs> Everything's about who's your daddy. Because if your daddy was Father Abraham, then your daddy is known for his faith, right? If that's your daddy. In fact, there's an expectation that you would walk by faith just like your daddy. There's an expectation there. Who's your daddy? It's a big deal. Is your daddy Cain or is your daddy Abel? Two completely different people. In fact, you would be identified based on your daddy. What kind of father did you have? Is your father Isaac or was your father Ishmael? Two completely different men. Two completely different men. Who's your daddy? Was your daddy King Saul or was your daddy King David? Two completely different men. And in fact, your character would be associated with your daddy. When you look at the kings during the time of kings, over and over, you see this reference. Anytime there's a good king, many times Scripture says something like, he walked with the Lord as his father, David. I mean, it said second generation, third generation, fourth generation. Could you imagine living your life in such a way that you were talked about in your second generation, third generation, fourth generation? Could you imagine having that kind of legacy? Think about that a little bit. You live your life in such a way, and they say, oh, he's just like his great, 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 great grandpa. Just like that. Man of God, man of faith, courageous. That's who he is. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? <clears throat> We're in the series called Out of Exile, and 
And today we're talking about decisions. And I want to just recap just, just a little bit where we're at. I'm not going to go into detail like I did last week. You can tune into last week's message if you want to hear a little bit about it. But here's the timeline. I want to remind everyone what's happening here. Um, the timeline looks like, looks like this. It starts off with uh, creation. And then we have our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it moves on to Exodus with Moses and conquest of the promised land judges. Then you've got all these kings. And then you have that suitcase there. And that's the exile right there. And that's where we're camping out right there. This is a time in Israel's history when they were going back home. They were exiled and they were moved to this foreign land known as Babylon. And while they were in Babylon, they were there for, in Babylon for 70 years. Say 70 with me, 70. 70 years they were in Babylon because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness. God evicted them out of the promised land and used this king named Nebuchadnezzar to re- get them out of the promised land. And for 70 years they're in this place, and now God's calling them back, and he uses another king named Cyrus, who's king of Persia. And God uses Cyrus and stirs Cyrus's heart. And now they're going back home and they're going back home to build the temple, to build the church. That's the purpose of them going back home, to worship God and to offer these sacrifices on this altar so they could experience the forgiveness of their sins. Now just think about that a little bit. The church was the nucleus of their community. It's just a little bit different from us today. If we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times church is not the nucleus of our, ha- of our home. It's not the nucleus of our life. It's not like that. And some people view church like a workout club or something like that. I know I should go, but I don't always go. Or they switch churches like they do cell phone providers or something. But during these days, in the Old Testament, the church was the nucleus of their faith life. It was everything. And they're going back, and they're going to build. So you read about this story in Ezra. You read about it also in First and Second Chronicles, and particularly in Ezra and Nehemiah. Most Bible scholars, again, believe Ezra was the author of these books. And in Ezra, check this out. <laughs> Ezra ch- chapter 1, you, you see the story of King Cyrus and King Cyrus saying, you need to go back. It's known as the second exodus. That's what it's known. So they're going back, but in Ezra chapter 2, they take names. In Ezra chapter 2, Ezra records the fathers who represent an entire household. And it's like this list of these are the guys who had courage to go back. These are the guys who, came, who went back. And every name is significant. Every name is significant. You know, when I was, uh, when I was young in my faith, and I started reading the Bible, anytime I came across a list of like Hebrew names, I would like skim through it because I couldn't pronounce them. But I wanted to get credit from God that I read it. You know what I'm saying? So I just like skimmed. Anybody else do that kind of thing? You're like, I don't know what this is. And you know, whatever it is, whatever it is, I don't know, shit about a Honda. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> and you just keep going. But here's what I've discovered as I've walked with God. These names are incredibly rich. These names are incredibly important. It's the who's who of the hall of fame of faith. It's, that's what it is. In Ezra chapter 2, there's a total of 49,897 people that are represented in these head of households. 49,897. 
It's so cool. I mean, if, if you were part of one of these families, you can look at Ezra chapter 2 and say, that's me. That's my daddy right there. That's my granddaddy. We were one of those who obeyed God. That's us. And you see this list, and it's beautiful. I'm going to start at Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. It says, here is the list of the Jewish exiles of the provinces who returned from their captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar had deported them to Babylon. But now... They returned to Jerusalem and the other towns in Judah where they originally lived. Going back home. Their leaders were Zerubbabel, and that's the guy we're going to talk about today. Jeshua, it's actually Yeshua, that's Jesus right there, that's, that's his Hebrew name. Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, not the same Mordecai of the other place in the Old Testament, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehom, and Bana. This is the number of the men of Israel who returned from exile. So here, there's like the 11 names that are like the, these are the spiritual leaders right here. And then he starts breaking down households. Now, I'm not going to read everything in here because, you know, you might just zone out or something. I don't know. But verse 3, check it out. The family of Parash, it tells you a little number how many people are associated with this father, 2,172. And these names all mean something. These names many times meant something in Babylon, and many times they mean something in Hebrew. But this name right here, Parash, means flea. Could you imagine that was your name? That's what you were known for, a flea. It just doesn't sound like something you want to stomp on or something like, I don't want to be known as the flea of a dog. Um, verse 5, a guy named Ara, and he's known for as a wild ox. That was his name. Verse 16, a guy named Ader, and he's, he's known as Lefty. That's what he was known as, Lefty. I love this one, Bizai, in verse 17, he's known as in the shadow of God. And then another guy in verse 19, Hashem, look at this, he's known for his broad nose. I was like, that's a great name. I like Gibar better, uh, verse 20, because it means strong man. Isn't that funny? So could imagine if, if you were named after your dad or your dad had a characteristic about him and maybe he was known as like his, his name was like the one with big ears or something like that, or always sleeping or big feet or little man, or talks a lot, or the one who argues, or always moody. Do you imagine if your name was tied to your character? That's what's happening here. And fathers, let me give you a word. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says this. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The most important job you have as a man is to show your family who Jesus is to show them who Jesus is, and to be an example. Because if you're an example, then your words have more weight. If you're not an example, you just teach them how to be a hypocrite. You don't want to teach them how to be a hypocrite. You want to be an example in love and righteousness. You want to be an example as a man in God's word. There's one father I want to look at. Here he is, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David, an actually ancestor of Jesus Christ. You read about him in Matthew. His name probably means Seed of Babylon, 
and he was an appointed governor over the province of Judah. So in 538 BC, he returns to Jerusalem. And he's one of the three. There's Zerubbabel, there's Ezra, and there's Nehemiah. So he's leading the first wave, Ezra chapter 1 through 6. That's Zerubbabel. And in 536 BC, notice it's two years after they arrived in Jerusalem, 536 BC, he leads a construction of the temple. Now, when the exiles came back to Judah, you have to understand something. When they come back home, back to their stomping grounds, so to speak, they found a much smaller state, much smaller state than when they left when they were originally exiled. It's much smaller. In fact, it's so small, it's about 25 miles from north to south, and it's 32 miles from west to east. It's approximately 800 square miles, and about one-third of it is uncultivated desert. So it's much smaller than when they left. And the truth is, when they were in Babylon, many of them had a good life. They had a very comfortable life. Many of them had businesses, and they were learning. These Hebrews were learning and this kind of thing. But now they come back, and when they come back to the promised land, it's really small, 800 square miles. Have you ever, have you, ask you this way, have you ever, like, not been in love with something that God gives you? You know, like God says, okay, here it is. And you look at it, and you're like, yeah, I expected something a little more glamorous. I expected something a little bigger. I know when we uh, were starting Thorn Creek Church and, and uh, well, we moved out here in September 2002, and I remember knocking on doors and telling Grace, baby, I'm going to go knock on doors and raiding everyone by chili peppers and all that stuff. And I remember the opening day in my, in my living room at home, and I was expecting like seven families to show up, and a total of three adults showed up. And my thought was, this is it, God. This is why I, I, I left everything, and this is what you're, you're it just didn't, wasn't exciting. I'll just be honest with you. I was like, there's three people, God. Um, I got more with my dog. There's, there's not a lot of people, God. I'm, I'm concerned about this. But God saw something else. It was the beginning of something that I didn't see yet fully. It reminds me of the day when we were evicted from, from Westgate School, which is now Westgate School, and we were evicted, and we went from about 25,000 square feet to about 7,000 square feet. And the 7,000 square feet, all the floors were uneven. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you were there during those days. Floors were uneven. It was old. And I went from, we went from this 25,000 square feet to 7,000 square feet, and you can't help but to wonder sometimes, God, am I still in your plan? Are you still walking with me, God? Am I still in your plan? Because I'm looking at this, God, and I'm not real excited about it. But God can do things, and he sees things that we don't see. And it was that very building that we ended up selling, and we ended up buying property that's valued today close to $5 million. But I didn't see it that day. I didn't see it. Yeah, glory to God. I didn't see it that day when we walked into this little 7,000-square-foot building. And I'm like, God, are you sure? Did you turn away just for a little bit, God? The Israelites leave Babylon, and they're coming back home, and it's much smaller than mom and dad talked about. And they're like, this is what all the fuss is about? This is it? Let me just give you a life lesson right here. Don't make decisions based on what is bigger. Make decisions based on what is God's will for your life. 
Don't make it about, if I make more money, then it's God's will. I've taken jobs like that, and I was miserable. <laughs> Do it based on God's will. It's not about the size of the house or the size of the car or the size of whatever. It's about God's will for your life. You trust him. Don't do that. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said this, many remained in Babylon being unwilling to leave their possessions. Unwilling to leave their possessions. The love of money is what? The root of all evil. The love of money. See, some people during, during this time, and even today, they fell in love with their possessions in Babylon. They fell in love with their life. They had a great yard, a manicured yard. They had wonderful land, and they had their life, and they had maybe home Bible studies, and it was comfortable. They had their possessions. And the idea of traveling 900 miles to go to this place called Jerusalem and start all over was not appealing to them. They knew God wanted them to go back, and God stirred the heart of King Cyrus. And there were some people living in Babylon that said, I don't know. It's not for me. I don't think so. I think I'll just stay right here. And I want you to hear this. Don't ever let your level of comfort be the determining factor for being obedient to God. So many times we make decisions on what church we go to based on comfort, what job I have based on comfort, who I'm with based on comfort, whether I'll serve here based on comfort, don't let comfort be the driving factor in your obedience to God. God has not called you to a life of comfort. He's called you to a life of obedience and sacrifice and trust in him. And we're very self-centered by nature. We, we tend to look at ourselves. It's just the way we are. And I want you to, I want to, hear, I want you to say, hear this also. Don't fall in love with Babylon. There were people who were in Babylon and God was calling them and they said, I kind of like it here. It's like, I'm okay with this plan. God wants to give them a better life, a better plan. And there's people who say, Babylon kind of has a nice ring to it. I want to stay here. I know it's not the promised land, but I got a good life. Don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle. God has a great life for you. Don't settle. Don't fall in love with Babylon. Zerubbabel left a life of comfort in Babylon. He was known for that. So in 538 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the Jews to go back. And two years later, the construction of the temple begins, led by Zerubbabel. And in 534 BC, the work stopped after two years of construction. After two years of showing up in Jerusalem, the work just stops. Just stops. Like sometimes if you've driven around I-25 or in neighborhoods and, and there's like something going up and all of a sudden it just stops and it's just there and it's not finished, maybe they ran out of money, whatever it is. Well, it just stops for two years. It just stops. And in, in fact, it was neglected for a total of 14 years. They leave Babylon to come back and build over here in Jerusalem, build the temple, the holy temple of God where God resides and they can worship God. And it's neglected for a total of, they start two years, and then it's 14 years of just nothing happening. 
and everyone's kind of getting used to their life. Everyone's kind of, you know, becoming okay with this construction of the temple that's not even done and not even, it's just not even one third done. And everyone's, 14 years goes by, nobody does anything. 14 years, 14 years. A lot can happen in 14 years. A lot can happen in 13 years. I wanted to share a testimony with you. This is a um, Mike and Carolina Simicopoulos. Mike Simicopoulos was praying for his biological daughters for 13 years. 13 years. And in a, he went through a really divorce, a really tough divorce. All divorces are tough. In, in the early 2000s. And the relationship with him and his ex-wife was not good and put a lot of pressure on their two daughters whose name Anastasia and Haley. Their mother did not want dad to have a relationship with them. I think Mike described it as a, 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 like a legal kidnap. He said it just, it just broke his heart. He wanted to see his two girls, and, but they weren't able to see them. And uh, his daughter Anastasia decided to stop seeing or having any inter interaction with Mike, her dad. She was 12 years old and, and eventually Mike and Caroline married. Eventually, this is Mike and Caroline. Eventually, they married. But when they walked into this marriage, Mike was just, was, was just hurting over his kids. Um, he told me he was devastated. And they fought, he fought the courts to enforce a parenting plan, offering to get family counseling and continue to pursue relationships with the girls. He sent gift cards, birthdays, Christmas, whatever it is. He prayed for reconciliation. In fact, he kept his same Phoenix phone number all the way until 2018, hoping that they would call. Never did. And he and Caroline started to pray. Isn't that beautiful? They started to pray over the years for both girls. And Mike loved them desperately, prayed that, the, that God would soften the heart of the ex-wife. The years passed, and both girls reached adulthood. Mike had faced the possibility that God might not have had reconciliation in his plan. But the prayers continued, requesting that if nothing else, God would keep Anastasia and Haley close to him and let them know his grace and love and the Holy Spirit was hard. Christmases were hard. All those things were hard. 13 years of praying for reconciliation. Last December, Mike received a message on Facebook. It was from Anastasia. She tried to call him on his old phone number and found, out, found him on Facebook. She, she said that she was a mother now and realized how hard it must have been for Mike to have no contact with his children for so long. It had been 13 years. She was so sorry that she had given up on their relationship and that she had cut him out of her life. And Mike and Anastasia, his daughter, started texting and talking on the phone after 13 years. 13 years. Mike and Caroline eventually went to Iowa to go visit them went to go visit them and, and, and discovered, uh, met her husband, Jeremiah, and the two kids, Wyatt Rose, and the others, Rhett, who turned one in January. And they have been to Iowa two more times. I want you to hear this. God is a God of reconciliation. Look at this picture right here. Here they are right here. Glory to God. 13 years. He told me that when he went the second trip, he would go in the mornings to go get coffee or whatever it was. And he said one morning he just stopped and he just wept in his car, just going over the love of God and how gracious God is. God knows. God knows. Now they have a beautiful new relationship, and they're starting over. And his kids, Anastasia and Jeremiah, they go to a church. They're believers. 
and God is reconciling and healing. Mike is called Papa, and Caroline is called Nana. Again, the original Greek language that means Grandpa and Grandma. So they're, uh, they thank you also. Many of you prayed for them for, the, for this time. And let me just say this. Here's what I want you to hear. Don't give up praying. Don't give up praying. Don't give up praying. Let me put it this way. If you're not going to pray for them, who is? Don't give up praying. You have a God who can do anything he wants to do. Let's look at Zerubbabel. 14 years goes by. And in 520 BC, God decides to use this prophet named Haggai. 14 years goes by. Zerubbabel is not, doesn't have a construction head on or whatever he is. And in Haggai chapter 1, here it is. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. So, so here's God's word for Zerubbabel. Here it is. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Verse 4, here it is. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? So Zerubbabel is like between a rock and a hard place a little bit. And the people are saying, it's not time. It's been 14 years, but it's not time to work on the church. And God speaks to Zerubbabel and say, hey, does it seem right to you that you live in this great house with granite countertops and that great deck and you have that great family room and that big flat screen TV? Does it seem right to you that you're living like that, but the house of the Lord is in shambles? Do you see a problem with that? That's what God's telling Zerubbabel. And he's, he's, he's telling him this. Incidentally, it's really interesting that Zerubbabel left Babylon where there was comfort for him. He moves and he comes all the way back to Jerusalem and he's there and 14 years goes by and he becomes comfortable with a construction project that has gone on for two years and has just stopped for 14 years, and he just all of a sudden becomes comfortable. It's a great lesson for us because sometimes we could be obedient to God and we could say, God wants me to do this, and we start going that direction, but we only see it halfway completed and we become comfortable with that. Don't settle for God's half plan for your life. Get God's full plan. Don't settle for a quarter of the plan and say, I'm gonna get credit for obedience. Seek God with all of your heart and see what he could do. Experience his full plan for your life. Going to church is not enough. God wants you to be obedient in every corner of your life, every corner. Sometimes we can settle for God's half plan. We can make the same mistake. God tells us to take care of something. And maybe it's related to a relationship. Maybe it's related to something else, a bad habit or a character issue or a giving issue or whatever it is or serving God. And we just say, you know what? I know God wants me to take care of that, but look what I've done already. I know God wants me to, but you know what? I, I'll take care of it later. I'll deal with that area later. God's going to, he knows my heart. He knows my heart. I'm back in Jerusalem and I know I'm not, it's not, the temple's not up, but I'm here. And one day, one week, one month, one year, 10 years goes by. And that thing that has been neglected is just sitting there. And God says, hey, 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 what about that? What about that? Remember that area I told you about? Let me just say this. Just because you blew it off doesn't mean God blew it off. 
God wants you to take care of every area of his life that he tells you to take care of. Here's what you need to know. When you neglect what God has told you to deal with, you also neglect God's perfect will for your life. When you neglect what God has told you to deal with, you also neglect God's perfect will for your life. Don't you want God's full plan? His full plan of joy and peace. He wants to use you. He has a plan for your life, a purpose for your life. Don't obey him halfway. Don't say, well, I'm here in Jerusalem. I don't know. You know. Don't reason within yourself. God tells you to take care of that relationship. You need to get out of it or you need to stop looking at that or whatever it is. Obey God fully because if you obey God fully, he shows you his perfect and full plan and he uses you in ways that you never imagined and there's complete healing with that as well. Obey, obey him fully. Look what God tells Zerubbabel. <laughs> There are Babel is told, you know, God tells them, hey, what about the house you're living in? And look at the house of the Lord. What's up with that? In verse 5, look what happens. Now, now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Somebody needs to hear that. <laughs> Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. God sees you. He sees your priorities. He sees your heart. He sees what you do in the day and in the night. God knows what you worship. He knows your doubts. He knows all these things. Your choices matter to God. Give careful thought to your ways. That's what God tells Zerubbabel, and that's our word, a word for us today. Give careful thought to your ways. And Zerubbabel, all of a sudden, he's living in this fine house, and he's like, you know what? I think, I think I've got it upside down. I think I need to spend attention Spend more attention and, and, and help the house of the Lord get to where it needs to be because that's where the Lord is and that's his holy place. And I need to stop worrying about my own comfort and my own life and my own, and I need to start focusing more on what God wants. And, he, and there's this change that happens inside of Zerubbabel. In fact, verse 14, check what happens. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shittil, governor of Judah, stirred up the spirit stirred up the spirit. I don't know why I got this picture of, of God just like, you know, moving stuff around and saying, you know, you know hey, 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 I'm going to kick up some dust in your heart. Zerubbabel, he stirs up his spirit, stirs it up. And you see that the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. There's nothing greater than having an encounter with the Spirit of God. Some of you, that needs to be your prayer. God, stir up my heart. God, stir up my heart. Because here's the truth of the matter. There's times where if God doesn't stir up your heart, you will continue to live with half obedience in your life and convince yourself that it's okay. Eventually, Zerubbabel, he was walking by that construction site 14 years. Eventually, he just didn't even notice it was there anymore. God stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He stirred it up. Zechariah comes in. 
Zechariah comes in, and God uses the prophet of Zechariah to teach Zerubbabel a lesson. In verse 6, here it is. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. See, God is teaching Zerubbabel something. He said, it's not by force. Other versions say, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he's teaching Zerubbabel something. It's an incredible incredible word for us. It's not by your might. It's not by your strength. It's not by your force. It's not by your intellect. It's not by your mind. It's not by your will. It's not by your force. It is by the spirit of the Lord. There are certain things... Certain battles you will have in life that require the Spirit of the Lord. In fact, the greatest things you will do in this world will be a partnership. It'll be the Spirit of the Lord working in and through you. Don't you want to be part of something bigger than yourself? Don't you want to have a life that can't be explained unless you talk about the Spirit of the Lord? A supernatural life that kind of life. Your greatest battles you face in life will need the Spirit of God. Then the Lord tells Zerubbabel this, nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It's so interesting how at one point Zerubbabel, 14 years, he was okay with the construction, not good, but now the Spirit of the Lord stirs Zerubbabel. And it says nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it. May God bless it. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple and he will complete it. Isn't that so good? He will complete it. Finish what you start. Finish what you start. Finish what you start. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. And look at verse 10. Look what God tells Zerubbabel. Do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hands. The seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. The Lord just stopped me at verse 10. It says, don't despise, what now? The small beginnings. And what did God see in Zerubbabel's hand? A plumb line. Come on up here, Mark. You may. Um, <clears throat> I got to get something here. I got a plumb line here. <clears throat> Here's what happens. There, Babel. He he's, he's, he has this plumb line in his hand. And what he's doing, he's going to the construction site. And he's starting to measure for the church. He's starting to take note of how far he has to go and he measures like this and maybe go this way a little mark and he measures maybe like this and he's getting measurements and this kind of thing and go back this way mark and he's getting measurements and maybe he's going this way, I don't know. But he's measuring, he has a plumb line in his hand and God sees this plumb line in his hand 
And it, it, it makes God's heart rejoice. Thanks, brother. You can just drop it. It makes God's heart rejoice. God sees it. And, and you know, in God's eyes, you know, this is a big deal. And, and you might think, oh, it's a small thing. I'm just going to get measurements. But God sees this plumb line in Zerubbabel's hands. And he's like, yes, it's starting again. I know what's going to happen. The temple's going to go up. The temple's going to go up. And the word God gives him is do not despise these small beginnings. It's an incredible word for us. Do not despise the small beginnings. For you, maybe your plumb line might be, you say, you know what, today I'm going to read one verse today in the Bible. And you might think that's not a big deal. But in God's eyes, you've got a plumb line in your hand. And he's like, it's the beginning. It's the start. Or you say, I'm going to pray today. I normally don't do this, but I'm going to pray. And God sees it's your plumb line. He sees it and he says, oh, this is great. This is going to happen. Or maybe it's that small decision where you say, I'm going to delete that app, or I'm not going to look at that video game anymore, or I'm not going to go to this site anymore. And you think it's not a real big deal, but in God's eyes, it's the beginning of a great thing. It's that small thing where you say, I'm going to go ahead and start to give, or I'm going to start working out, whatever it is, or I'm going to go to church, or I'm going to take this one step, and, and you say, don't underestimate the small beginnings, because small beginnings lead to great things. And God is saying, look, you're small, but I see it. And Scripture says that God actually rejoices. It makes his heart happy. He's excited. He rejoices because it's the beginning of obedience. It's the beginning of faithfulness. It's the beginning for you to be the person God has called you to be. And God's like, oh, this is so exciting. I see him. He's got a plumb line in his hand. I'm so excited. Look at him. He got a Bible. That's awesome. I'm so excited. He's in church. He never goes to church. I'm so excited. Holy. And it thrills the heart of God. Don't underestimate the small beginnings. They're big deals. They're big deals. That's all I got. God loves you. God cares about you. I want to give you an opportunity to turn to the Lord. Maybe you're here, maybe you're online, and you need to turn to Jesus. This is your chance to do that. I want to pray for you. Some of you need to pick up a plumb line. <laughs> Some of you need the Spirit of the Lord to stir your heart. Wherever you're at, just let God have his way. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you, God. You're so good. I'm grateful you're the God of reconciliation. I'm grateful, God, that you don't give up on us. I'm grateful, God, for you in so many ways. And if you need to ask Jesus into your heart, just say, Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Forgive me for my sins. I give you my life. Others of you might need to turn away from the God of comfort. Maybe God is calling you out to be obedient. Just say, God, stir my heart. Stir my heart, God. Give me a new desire to seek you with all my heart. Give me a new desire, God, to read your word. Others of you might need to say, God, I want to complete what you've asked me to start. I don't want to be okay with half obedience. I don't want to neglect your will for my life. So have your way in and through me, God. Thank you, God, for your love and grace. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. I just 
praise you, Jesus, because I recognize who you are, and we love you, God. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Each year, thousands of Thorn Creek Church messages are downloaded for free. This ministry is generously supported by Thorn Creek Church members and listeners like you. If you'd like to support this ministry, please consider making a tax-deductible donation by visiting thorncreek.church/give.